Chicago. This is Bruce Dumont with our Beyond the Beltway analysis of national politics, featuring occasional injections of Roman innuendo, all up for the fire panel of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, public servants, professors, and most importantly, plain-speaking Americans from coast to coast. Tonight, featuring commentary by Phil Beverly, Jack Charlier, and John Kachelko. Our program tonight coming to you by our base at the Museum of Broadcast Communications in Chicago, where our toll-free lines are open at 1-800-723-8029. That's 1-800-723-8029. If you'd like to email me a comment, it's Bruce Dumont at museum.tv. If you'd like to tweet me a comment, it's at uh, at Dumo, at D-U-M-O. And again, if you want to join us on the World Wide Web, it's beyondthebeltway.com. You see both radio and TV shows uh, when you tune into uh, that uh, website. Well, according to uh, ver- a variety of published reports from all over the world, the likelihood of a military strike against Syria after a suspected chemical weapons attack uh, increased greatly today as President Trump said there would be a, quote, big price to pay, end of quote, and officials in France vowed the country would do its duty in responding. France called for an emergency meeting of the Security Council tomorrow to discuss the weekend attack, and eight other nations joined in the request, including the United States and Britain. The referencing is uh, the warnings uh, to uh, Assad uh, in Syria about uh, what his uh, people allegedly have done. The Russians have called this a hoax. They don't believe it. But President uh, Trump, who obviously has been under a lot of pressure, a lot of people since Election Day say he's too soft on the on the, on the Russians and too soft on Putin. And in the last uh, several weeks, he's getting uh, beefing up a little bit. Uh, there were the sanctions earlier last week. And then his tweet today, which said, quote, President Putin, Russia, and Iran are responsible for backing animal Assad. Big price to pay. Open area immediately for medical help and verification. Another humanitarian disaster. No reason whatsoever. And then sick, all in capitals. That was the tweet from the President of the United States. We've got a panel tonight. I want to get everybody's reaction. John Kacholko, we start with you. Uh, When the President says there's a big price to pay, what should that price be, in your view? Could be military. The last time we took out about 25% of Assad's air force, uh, we may do that again. Or they might do something different in military nature. They might want to do a, a different maneuver, uh, f- feeling that he would be expecting a similar attack from what happened the last time. But I think Assad is a, a villain. Chlorine gas, it's amazing. We're, we're in the 100th anniversary of the First World War. This year will mark the end of the First World War's centenary. And here we are using chlorine gas, which first made its appearance in 1915 in World War I, uh, and using it against his own people. So I mean, I hope there's some spirited response, and I think there will be. Phil Beverly, Chicago State University, your response. Um, I, I'm expecting some airstrikes, some cruise missile strikes. Um, I would also caution the president, stop tweeting stuff like, oh, we should end this and pull out of Syria, and sort of giving a green light to a guy who's already demonstrated a capacity to use weapons that aren't supposed to be used. Don't, just don't do that. Do you think it was a connection between the two? I absolutely do. I think he showed, a, a as the, the head of this country and the head of the free world, he showed a lack of commitment to us being in Syria by saying, ah, oh, we should get out in just some casual, flippant way. A follow-up, though. 
if the president suggested or hinted that he hinted, I don't think it was an he hinted that we may be getting out of Syria, and then there's the reaction of what happened, at, you know, over the weekend or actually a couple of days ago, actually last yesterday. Um, some would argue that if he said that, why would Assad do what he did? Because that would just inflame the president and uh, make the president think twice about pulling out of Syria. I think it would op work just the opposite of what you think. Except that the evidence is that they used chemical weapons on his own people. It just happened. And the, the other thing that I would say about it is the statute of limitations about blaming Obama is up now. You've been president for more than a year. You can't blame Obama. If you're saying Obama should have gotten Assad out of power, well, now it's your turn. Get Assad out of power. Jack Charlier also joins us. Jack, nice to have you with us for Maiden Voyage on Beyond the Bowie. Yep, your you. reaction, uh, the price, what price should somebody pay for this? Yeah. So first of all, it's a very, very serious infraction, right, against humanity, crime against humanity. Uh, two things come to mind. Uh, first, on the price, uh, the question is a matter of when will that price be paid. In other words, I don't know what the price is for that. We think of the international courts and stuff like that. But when will that price be paid uh, and who pays that, right? That's one question. Um, the thing, though, that I think about when I see this or when I uh, learned of this uh, like everybody else did is uh, why was this done? What was the motivation for it? Because that's key to understanding what the response could be to see if there's any way of heading this off again. It's not the first time. How do we make it to be the last time? What was the motivation? Was it testing us? And as Americans uh, traveled a lot, as Americans, are we thinking of this from like Assad to us? Or are we understanding kind of the play, the geopolitical play of what's going on? What was he actually doing with this, uh, with this action, which is a horrible action? What was he asking John, for? John, what do you think he was at? up to? I certainly don't think that it's because of what, what President Trump tweeted. I mean, just because he talks about maybe withdrawing our forces at some point in the future, that the forces are still there, and, and the, yeah. the Sixth Fleet is still in the Mediterranean. So I don't think that has anything to do with anything. Uh, I think Assad is just Assad. I think Assad is he's a brutal dictator, and he got away throughout the Obama administration. He got away with, with murder, literally, and he probably thinks that he can do it again. He may think that he may be testing Trump. He may think that Trump's under so much criticism at home that he's not able to act forcefully. I think he's going to be sorely disappointed if that's what he thinks. But didn't he test him last year? And obviously what we did last year under Donald Trump didn't work either. Help me understand this. Didn't the, work the by the way, we should remind you, last, la, last so, year, the response to this, which was almost a year to the day, the anniversary was, anniversary was the same day. Last year, he dropped one of the biggest bombs ever. It wasn't a nuclear weapon, but he dropped one of the biggest bombs Moabs. ever. Moabs, yeah. 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 He dropped a Moab. Obviously, it had no lasting impact well, on Assad's decision Well, he hasn't Assad's done anything dramatic calculus. for a year. I mean, at least, at least he held off for a year on doing something dramatic. So I wouldn't say it had no effect. Uh, the fact of the matter is we should have dealt with Assad under the Obama administration. We didn't. When you say the statute of limitations is over, for eight years Barack Obama blamed everything that went wrong on George W. Bush. Really? Every, sure, his oh, the economy. Come on. Everything John, wrong with the economy. Come on. Gentlemen, the let's, not, gentlemen let's not litigate the past. Let's not litigate the past. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about the future right now. When uh, does, does Assad call Putin? I mean, is there a call between Assad and Putin before Assad troops do this, what they've been alleged to do? 
Yeah. Jack, do you think so? Uh, so what, I, how, what, how close is that relationship? Yeah, so that I have no idea about. I know yeah, it's the question you're asking. I've, I have no idea on it. I want to get back, though, to this idea, um, not because I presented it, but what you just said, too. How do we prevent this in the future? In other words, what are the p uh, pieces on the board that we have to move around? Uh, not only as America, but with all our allies uh, and with those who are not our allies to stop this from happening. That's not my area of expertise, but it is the question I ask when I see this. Well, they seem what to, does the, it the, look like? The rest of the allies seem to be ready to, to retaliate. Yeah. I mean, yeah. France said that basically, uh, you know, that they're, that, they're, that they're basically in. They, 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 they said the country would do its duty do its duty that's a direct quote yeah. in responding and this is this is a prince i yeah. suspect we'll hit them a lot harder than we did the last time i suspect that if they do use a military strike it'll be much more dramatic than what happened a year ago and when to you those listening from coast to coast and border to border where do you feel should there be some sort of a military response uh, to the gassing of the children in syria and women and children in syria 1-800-723-8289 or do you believe as the russians that it's all a hoax back shortly and moral integrity, the fate of the community hangs in the balance. The Village Voice raves, an enemy of the people is exhilarating to experience. An enemy of the people at Goodman Theater, March 10th through April 15th. Tickets at goodmantheater.org. Bruce Dumont back in Chicago. Thanks very much for joining us. 1-800-723-8289. Uh, the... Uh, the, the strikes that we're talking about uh, on the women and children, uh, the reports that uh, I have seen, uh, the sources here, are the White Helmets uh, Group and the Syrian American Medical Society. So a question that I would have for everyone, we'll start with you, Jack. I mean, when we hear stories like this, obviously the president reacts. I mean, all the leaders of, of Europe are reacting in a very effective way. Would they be acting in as vociferous a way if they had any doubt about these stories being accurate? No, I don't think so. Uh, the, these are very careful deliberations, obviously, that nations uh, make before engaging in language and then certainly followed up by actions uh, on something as serious as this, so absolutely not. And that people on the ground that are very credible are saying this, I think, is the reason that they're responding so quickly to this, is that it's a credible story and the pictures are horrific. So denials from Syria, denials from Russia mean nothing. Uh, they, mean, they mean nothing. nothing. And I would, I would imagine that we probably have uh, significant intelligence assets on the ground so we can verify without compromising those assets that, in fact, the open source information is true. I want to ask you the question I asked Jack, and again, this is pure speculation, but um, Assad, the, the president blames Assad, he blames Putin. When Assad decides to do this, does he alert Putin that he's going to do it? Oh, absolutely. You don't put your, benef your primary benefactor in a situation where he's reading about it in the New York Times. What is, the, what is the benefit to them of having pictures around the world of children and, and women being aghast? What's the, what is the benefit to that in the 21st century? Shows how tough for, they for, are. For, I mean, I think yeah, they want to impress for, for somebody with how ruthless they are. Yeah, I think they, um, exactly. Putin is KGB. He wants he wants to be thought Absolutely. of as a brutal, ruthless leader. He wants people afraid of him. He wants people fearful of Russia. And because, Assad is a you know a small time version of Putin. Well, a wannabe version of Putin. Yeah, well, as I said, a small time version. Of him, and yeah. and I think it's the the showing a willingness to do whatever it takes 
because it's still a civil war that they're engaged in. It's not just an right. ISIS thing. There's still other rebel groups engaged in trying to take Assad out. And so he's going to send a message to him. I'll do whatever it takes to crush all of you. Yeah, but doing it with, though, the knowledge or what they believe is a certainty of knowledge uh, or certainly belief that nothing will, in fact, happen back. Yes. Nothing that they can't withstand. I right. mean, we're talking about a nation as an actor, but as an individual, like any human being in our community, someone who acts a certain way, you might be able to discern from that. Part of that, if it's not irrational, is because they believe that or they're not afraid of or believe that nothing's coming back their way. So what, um, type, of rea- what type of reaction should there be? Uh, again, uh, according to the, the published reports today, the, the president is is obviously having conversations with his military leaders, General Mattis. They're talking about what the military response might be. But again, you have all these other you know, major nations of, of, of Europe. Uh, they're, they're all thinking, including you've got France. France doesn't you know, saber rattle very often, but they're out there yeah. rattling the sabers. And France has military power that they can deploy. France right. has, France has a, a military force that could be useful in that area. How strong should this be? I guess that's the big question. If, if we didn't get his attention uh, last year by dropping you know, this huge bomb last year, what do we do this year? You do more. I think. I think that's why I think they may do something other than just a you know a cruise missile strike or something of that sort that, that takes out one airfield. They may. They may. They may wait a few days and do something more coordinated. You may have the allies involved in it as well. Uh, but they may do something that's going to be even more dramatic than what President Trump did a year ago. Does this incident and the perhaps military response by the West, coupled with uh, the assassination of the spies by the Russians in Great Britain and the response of Great Britain and, and the United States and the increased sanctions against people very close to Vladimir Putin. Do these two things happening simultaneously, does it send a signal to you, Phil, that what's on the horizon is a major explosion between the United States and Russia. I don't think it's an, an explosion in the sort of pre-digital era that we might be expecting. I think you might see an explosion in, I don't know, cyber activities, asymmetrical kinds of warfare. I don't think the Russians or the U.S. or the Russian, Russian allies want to get into a shooting war with us, but they do want to establish themselves again as a world power and do it at our expense. And if we show any weakness here, it's not going to be good for us in the long term. I mean, we're going to have to do something unpleasant, and it's going to cost us. And I think, you know, we haven't established yet that we are like a Vladimir Putin, that we will do whatever it takes here. Because he's he's basically playing poker with us, and he said, I'll call you. Now what? Are you going to raise me, or are we done here? Jack, how tough can we be? Yeah. So it's a really good question, Bruce. Uh, as America, you know, we are a nation of values that looks and acts a certain way uh, different than, certainly than Putin and uh, Syria and North Korea and a lot of other countries. And we have to maintain that. That's extremely important. Um, I'm going to go a little bit of history here. I know I've got a history uh, a buff uh, expert on my right here in uh, the studio. Uh, I think when it comes to chemical weapons, the lesson from history is you have to go to the very top uh, and you have to be able to say to the actual person 
who made this decision. This is you on the line now, not just installations and military installations uh, in your country. The collateral damage uh, is not the issue. It's what is the damage directly on the person who made the call and made the shot. And I think that's the lesson here if we're going to say that there's a line in the stand. Assassination? Don't we talk about assassination? Uh, I'm, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that whoever it is is who the, the sanction or the action must be against. And I don't know what that looks like, right? That's not my area. But it has to be right there in a regime like Syria where the shots are being called probably by a very small number of people, right? That's where it's got to go to. I don't know what that looks but like, would you, but, but that's where it's got to would, go to. But would you agree, though, then, that it also goes to Assad and to Putin? If, if Assad looked or called Putin to, to get his okay with this or doesn't yeah. feel he needs to do it, are we putting, are we putting Putin on that, that hit list? Uh, I think Assad is on Putin's chessboard, not the other way around. I mean, he's he's an actor on Putin's regional stage. I don't agree with the national. I mean, the international. Russia has no military ability. Uh, I was in the military, right? He has no military ability to deploy to Central America and South America. He is a regional player trying to ensure dominance in his area of the world. And if we encroach upon that, he will act. Assad's on Putin's chessboard. It's not the other way around. John, yeah, it's, it's what we've been exaggerating Putin far too much, and if some yes. of the political reasons yes. for the last couple of years. Putin presides over a country that is an economic basket case. Uh, their military power is not what it once was. Yes, they have the, the, the nuclear forces, but their conventional forces are in no way comparable to what the United States has. He, is, he knows he's playing essentially a weak hand, and it's all bluster. It's all image. And at the present time, that's going over well with the Russian public. They like having a tough guy, you know, beating his chest all the time. Well, we shouldn't exaggerate Russia's power or Putin's yeah. power. I, I, I don't fully agree with that uh, just from the time I've spent overseas. My dad's from Europe. I'm going to fall on that and say, you know, it's a very, I, I have more than just kind of an American point of view on this in terms of America here and, you know, there over there. Uh, I'm going to use an analogy which is not meant to minimize what just happened. Um, Putin is like the pitcher, and he's brushing back the batter and we're, we in Europe are the batter, right? We're being brushed back from what is an encroachment upon the bear. And he has a region where he wants to be strong and show power and anything in that area he's going to pitch and brush us back well, I agree uh, that. from used, that. They used to say that the Soviets were like, like the guy walking down the hotel corridor rattling every doorknob yeah. until they find one that's open and then they go in. Yeah. yeah he's going he's gonna to attempt to push anywhere he can. All I'm saying is we shouldn't imagine that this is that he's Joseph Stalin. We shouldn't imagine that he pre presides over the kind of power the Soviet Union once yeah, had. Yeah, no, that's correct. And even correct. in those days, they were an economic basket. That's case. correct. Uh, and then the other, so I, I agree with you on that. The other thing, of course, we have to remember uh, Crimea and what happened there. That was very real, right? A lot of pain, a lot of hurt. I mean, all this stuff is inflicting massive amounts of hurt upon people who have no control, right? They're not even the pawn on the chessboard. They're beyond collateral damage. And I, I don't want to forget the human tragedy that unfolds in these situations. Uh, they will pay the price no matter what happens, no matter who does what. They're always on the downside of this, the folks, the everyday folks. Sure. Uh, Phil Beverly, in the world of propaganda, photos of women and children being gassed. Is there anything more devastating than that at this moment in time? In this moment, no, not really. I mean, I, I think that's as bad as it gets. The the concern that I have is the speed of the news cycle 
and how quickly that will fade from being in the news cycle. Mm -hmm. That we're not reminded of, of the, the barbarism that, that has been displayed here. But frequently, I mean, it, when you're trying to rally uh, the troops or the populace of any country, doing something to women and children and gassing them, that's almost a, that's a slam dunk you're going to get reaction with those photos. Yeah. The same thing, again, this is a different story, but I want to I want to make make connection here. The same thing is when President Trump talks about the women that are part of this caravan coming towards, towards the U.S.-Mexican border, that there's massive rape that's going on there. I mean, the image of rape and the image of gassing women and children have been used for a long time to rally a lot of people on all sides of the political spectrum because of the 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 uh, the evilness of that of that image the horror is, is is obvious and i would i would expect that that beyond the the regional elements i think we're being tested i'm going to disagree with john we're being tested globally okay, here we got to pause. 1-800-723-8229 from Chicago. I'm Bruce Dumont. Thanks for joining us tonight. Are you planning for the day when you can retire to your dream home in Palm Springs, California? A day surrounded by spectacular scenery, golf courses, a rich cultural life, and great dining? If you are, you'll need a guide, someone who knows where to look, an experienced broker, someone who knows the desert communities of Southern California and all they have to offer. That person is Brian Beard, who's been making dreams come true for over 13 years, selling over $100 million in real estate, including celebrity and architecturally significant homes to the rich and famous, and more importantly, to people just like you. Brian's company, Caldwell Banker, has agents worldwide, but Brian Beard is your man in Palm Springs. Call Brian now at 760 799 7096. That's 760 799 7096. Or visit him online at BrianSellsTheDesert.com. Bruce Dumont back in Chicago. Thanks for joining us tonight. 1 800 723 8029. Gentlemen, is this a time when the president should be meeting with Vladimir Putin? Bill Beverly. Yeah, you sort of have to. I mean, you, you can't just ostracize the guy because you know what he's capable of. You know he'll do something to get your attention. So it's, it's like you, you have to talk to people you don't like. Doesn't mean you have to agree with them, but you got to at least talk to them. John? Yeah, Reagan was willing to meet Andropov and Brezhnev. They kept, he always said they kept dying on him. All, all the <laughs> Soviet leaders kept dying on him. But he was willing to meet with them. Nixon met with Brezhnev. I mean, FDR met with Stalin. You, you don't necessarily meet with leaders simply because you like them or agree with them. You have to recognize their position. And, and so, should, yeah, the, sure. should the timing be imminent, though, given what we're dealing with with, uh, with, with Syria and, and the gassing right now, Jack? I mean, is this something should happen in weeks or months? If the calculation is that it will save something like this from happening again, then absolutely yes. If there's an idea or we have intelligence saying that this is the first of many mm -hmm. things to happen, uh, not just related to the gassing but other things, absolutely. And I agree with both comments. You meet with people in life. 
that you like, dislike. The point is you're trying to advance your agenda, your nation's agenda, your bloc's agenda, and while the diplomats do their part to set the stage, lay the groundwork, uh, it is with someone like Putin the requirement that the president be there. I mean, that is the game that is underway here. It is not to send minor functionaries and diplomats uh, to Moscow and meet with him or this. It has to be the president. And uh, should this be something that's done before the meeting with North Korea? Or is that is that cramming too much into uh, uh, a foreign policy agenda, Phil? I think that, that we should determine the pace, what's, what's going to be in our best interest to get the most done. Trying to rush things never is going to work, unintended consequences of that. So. I said last week that uh, it would not surprise, in fact, I predicted it. I predicted mm -hmm. that when the, when the world was focused on the meeting between uh, the president of South Korea and Kim Jong-un and possibly the president of China, that while all the focus of the world was there, Vladimir Putin was going to be doing something that's going to upstage everybody. Uh, does everybody, you're nodding, Jack, the timing, this is the way this guy acts, right? Uh, yes, because if you're a regional player versus an international player, you have to take actions that hit the radar, so to speak, right? And uh, what happened in Syria, sadly, hit the radar, right, and brought the attention back there to say, hey, we're still here, don't forget about us, there's something else going on here too. And to the point of, uh, you know, timing, there is internationally, there has been globally uh, on trade, uh, politics, socially, a reordering is what's going on in the world right now. We know that, we get that. And I think that the, and I agree with you about the pace at which to go, but the immediacy of the need to act uh, globally with all our interests of ourselves as American, our allies, to me is very clear. This is like a community. It's a neighborhood. And in the neighborhood, we have some actors that are not as good as kind of others from our perspective. You need to act. You cannot let that just sit by. The world is reordering. And once it catalyzes in a new order, it is always harder to undo that stuff than kind of mess it up right now and stop it from catalyzing. Whatever that may be, China, North Korea, Russia, whatever's going on that we are aware of and not aware of, we have to be in there and have our interests known to try to stop it before it catalyzes as some new block that we've never seen before. Are you worried, uh, John, that the foreign policy uh, establishment of the United States, <clears throat> specifically uh, John Bolton, who joins the Trump team tomorrow, a CIA director who hasn't been approved by the Senate, uh, a secretary of state that has not been confirmed by the Senate, although he's been the CIA director, that the foreign policy structure of the United States, just the team that would have to prepare President Trump for his upcoming meeting. Uh, do you think that, uh, are you confident there's enough time for them to get this job done and get him prepped? Well, I'm much more confident now that Pompeo is going to be Secretary of State and, and Bolton. I'm a great admirer of Bolton. Uh, I think they're in there, even if they haven't been confirmed, they are, they are available. Uh, uh, Pompeo is still the CIA director. Right. So uh, they are able to provide him with, the, uh, with the, the briefings that he needs. And I have a great deal of confidence in Donald Trump. I think he is a tough negotiator. I think he is a strong nationalist. He's as strongly nationalistic as, as Vladimir Putin is. And I think that, uh, that uh, the negotiation, whatever, whatever takes place in these, these meetings, uh, will come out quite well for the United States. I'm very optimistic about that. Do you think Vladimir Putin has something on Donald Trump? No. As the former CIA director suggested, Bill no. Beverly. John Brennan said he might have something on Donald Trump. 
that he does or doesn't, I mean, the guy is pretty much Teflon. He can make comments on video about grabbing women inappropriately and, you know, Stormy Daniels getting paid off. And so it doesn't matter what, what anybody has on the guy. I mean, he said it himself. He could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and nothing was going to happen Do you still believe that, Jack? You spent a lot of time in Europe. You said you just got back recently. Uh, yep. what, what's the impression of this president in Europe? Um, so generally uh, not that great, right? So Europe, which uh, of course has a much longer history than we do, uh, tends to take a longer run time frame and perspective on things. Uh, but I'd say right now, just based on conversations uh, from just when I was recently over there, uh, kind of not overly excited by it because they rely on America to be a stable force for them, a stable presence, a stable ally. And when they don't feel that, that, that is unnerving to them at times. Not that they're uh, dependent upon us for their existence. That's not the case. But we're, we are, you know, the international global force. And it is, uh, when you watch the news over there, uh, what you see is the sense of, are we going to have to go this alone, or do we have America in the game with us? Do they, do, do they think, that does, the, does the European on the street, in your view, do they spend more time thinking about Russia than they do about the United States? Um, don't know the answer to that, so here's what I'll say. Uh, Russia is, is real close by to them, and so it's a different, uh, different way of looking at it than we do is the way to, like we here in the United States, we spend a lot of time thinking and talking about Mexico, and that seems to us like a huge thing. It's right. not a huge thing to them. To them, Russia is right there, and they have a trading partner, and they have lots of ties and back and forth on the borders and all that stuff. A lot of history. That's, yeah, a lot of history. That's much more relevant than how we see it, for example, as Americans 6,000 miles away across the ocean. John. Russia is, as, as it has been historically, a potential threat to Europeans and to Western Europeans. Sure. So they have to think of that. The United States... Whatever they may think of America, they know that America is not a threat to them. I just want to say that, you know, John Brennan, even though he's a former communist, I don't think he has any direct pipeline into the Kremlin. Uh, I wouldn't believe anything John Brennan said about Trump. I mean, if John Brennan said, you know, that the sun will come up tomorrow in the east, I would check Are it you out. He's a former communist. Yeah, he's he's, he's admitted that he, he registered as a communist when he was in college or something of that sort. He said it was a youthful lark, but uh, I don't think it was. And that. he became the CIA director. Yeah. I don't, I don't think that someone being a member of, of the Ku Klux Klan would have been passed off as a youthful indiscretion. But, but for Brennan, it was just sort of a joke. He, he pre presented it as sort of a funny story. Does Kim, does Kim Jong-un, um, the fact that he has already gone and met with the president of China, was that a, obviously it was dramatic because he had not made a foreign <laughs> trip since he's been the, the leader over there. Um, did he steal the show from Donald Trump already by, with that move? Because we don't quite know what is now in the head of the president of China. No, I think he stole the show when it was announced that the, the president of the United States was going to meet with him. That, to me, it's like, eh, I don't think this whole bilateral conversation needs to happen yet. I think we need to have multilateral talks first, get something agreed to, and then you come in as the closer once everything's done. I don't think sort of meeting at the front end serves any, any particular interest, especially with somebody who's got so little experience in foreign policy. No, but what I'm saying is that within, within two months, Kim Jong-un basically is going to say, hey, I went, I went to China, I met with the president of China, 
I'm about to meet with the President of the United States and, and the, the, the head of uh, the President of South Korea, who he's met with before. I mean, and th this is a guy who hasn't gone outside of his country. He's 35 years old. Everybody thinks he's crazier than, than a loon. And, and within, within two months, he, he will have had personal meetings and photos with, 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 with two world leaders. And Does he's that not, not give him a lot of credibility? And he's not crazy, one. Right. He's extremely shrewd and ruthlessly evil. Um, this indicates it, doesn't it? But not he's shrewd. Oh, very shrewd. But I, I'm not going to enable him by making him more legitimate than than he is. I mean, if they didn't have nuclear weapons, would we be thinking about North Korea? No. This is a country that can't even feed itself. Yet we're spending an inordinate amount of time and national treasure to keep an eye on them and have military responses and options available, that seems to be not the best And And I best would argue that one way. of the reasons we're doing that is because three two-term presidents, two of them Democrat, <laughs> one of them Republican, yep. did nothing for a quarter of a century to substantially impede them from building those nuclear weapons. Right. And now it's been dumped in the lap of Donald Trump, and he has to deal with it because time has run out. Do you agree that there is no military option involving North Korea? No, I don't at all. I think I think the military option is very much on the table. And I think that uh, if, if... What is that option? Because most guests that we've had on this program in recent months have come to the conclusion that they don't think there's a military option that's, that's viable, given the fact that the first to be hit would be South Korea, Seoul would be, uh, in essence, wiped out, Japan would be uh, in... in uh, shaking in their boots as well? I, I don't believe that. The, 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 what is not an option is for North Korea five years from now to have an arsenal <laughs> of ICBMs aimed at New York and Washington and Chicago and Los Angeles. That's the option that is unthinkable. Military strikes would be preferable to that. 1-800-723-8029 from coast to coast and border to border. I'm Bruce Dumont. Thanks for joining us tonight. When we come back, we'll take calls and more conversation. Thanks for being with us. From Chicago, it's Saturday Night Live, The Experience. Tuesday through Sundays, and open late on Wednesday nights at the Museum of Broadcast Communications. Order tickets at museum.tv. Dumont back in Chicago. John Kachelko, one thing that the president did last week, uh, he's been talking about the wall since uh, he first announced, and uh, the wall is slowly being built, very, very slowly being built, not much money appropriated for it, uh, and yet the president is feeling the heat from his constituents and his base that he's got to do something, and so last week he ordered out, uh, ordered National Guards troop, National Guardsmen to, to the borders of the United States involving four states. What do you think of that idea? Well, it reinforces the Border Patrol. They obviously, they're not going to be there with, with fixed bayonets at the border, but they can take over <clears throat> air surveillance. They can do uh, uh, surveillance, radar, that sort of thing. There are all sorts of support activities and logistics that they can provide that frees up the Border Patrol to do the actual work on the border itself. I think it's a good idea. Good idea, Phil, or bad idea? 
you know, in the emergency management world, the when you have a disaster, the National Guard is the last resource that you want to bring online and the first one you want to demobilize because they're the most expensive. I, I would just say, to what end? They don't have arrest powers, so they could catch somebody and do what? Wouldn't it be better maybe if we contracted out those activities to somebody else? I'm sure there's private security companies that had experience tracking people in Iraq or Pakistan or Afghanistan that could do the same thing, tracking um, illegal immigration here. Is there something about having troops on the border that would get people to think twice about maybe heading towards the border check? Because the people that are heading towards the border, they may not know that the troops don't have arrest power and don't have bullets in their what, weapons, although I think that would get out pretty quickly. Why would we assume that they would know that there's troops at the border? I'm imagining that folks are who are making a desperate, life-endangering trip across the border probably Might aren't checking in with CNN all the time. And, and what we know about illegal immigration, it's people who enter the country legally and overstay their visa right. are the largest number. So... The National Guard isn't going to do anything about those people. Right. So let's let's get but the again, immigration a, a, dialed a, a, in. A lot of this has to do with pictures and the pictures of thousands and thousands of people from Central America marching through uh, Mexico, heading towards the U.S. border, even though they they do it every single year, and then they sort of turn around and go back. I mean, th th that picture is worth a thousand words when you're trying to rally the troops and you're saying, hey, we've got to do something. Let's, let's have them meet the troops. And both George Bush and Barack mm. Obama both, did, both, did both used the National I Guard. Wanna, uh, in the next hour, we're going to be talking about opioids, and we're going to spend a lot of time talking about uh, drugs and the war on drugs and, and, and the problem of opioid addiction in the United States. Uh, that'll be the focus of our number two. But I do, as part of a crossover discussion here, Jack, your background and your area of expertise is, is, is crime, uh, all related, ju criminal justice and crime-related issues. When when we talk about Mexico and we talk about immigrants to the United States, I don't want to talk about the number of immigrants who either are, are involved in crime or not in crime because I don't know whether those statistics are accurate or not. But when we talk about drugs and the flow of drugs into the United States, how much how important is that border to secure for that purpose? Uh, if it could be secured, it's very important because America is the number one user of illegal drugs in the world. The things that are going on on the border in terms of violence uh, and turf issues and the killings are very much related in large part to Americans' use of illegal drugs, period. If the United States, if we as Americans are not using drugs at the level we're at, What's going on between U.S. and Mexico at the border is probably not happening unless there's something else going on. That is the name of the game. That has nothing to do with immigration. That is about Americans and our use of drugs. I forgot the percentages offhand. We'll, we'll get into this, but uh, we as the United States uh, consume about 80% of the world's illegal drugs are consumed by one nation. That's us. That isn't happening. You don't have all the deaths on the border. You don't have all the tunnels being dug uh, and people's bodies being used to carry drugs. That's the real story here. It's not building something to keep out the drugs. It is treating the people here to prevent drug use in the first place and then to get treatment access for those folks. But you those, do that, but those drugs but those But those drugs are coming to the United States. They are coming from Mexico. So is the president correct when he sort of conflates 
the rush of immigrants into the country, that some of those interest, uh, immigrants, not all, but some of those inter, Im, immigrants are involved in the illicit drug trade. Yeah, I actually don't know that, so I'm not going to speak to that. Is it possible <clears throat> that in any large population are some folks who are doing that? Absolutely. I, I'm well, sure that. Well, how else would they I be getting know. the drugs into the country? Well, it's not being done by folks who are trying to get in here to get a better life. It's being done by folks who are part of a cartel, who are doing an illegal operation and using other people to get them in here. Doesn't I don't know what the data looks like on that in terms of who the folks mm -hmm. are, uh, uh, immigration population subset that's part of that. But it is the cartel. It is people who are criminal in nature who are moving the drugs across uh, the border. And would a border wall stop that? No idea. I just know that that's really the issue here. We're going to go to a call. Let's go to Josh, line three, listening to us on uh, KONX in Knoxville, Tennessee. Go ahead, Josh. Hello? Josh, are you there? Can you hear me? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, can you hear me now? Yes. Okay, Speak up, though. Uh, You're a little bit low. I, I, I'm sorry about that. I, I have a question for the panel, and I, and I, I, I want to preface this by saying I understand it's a very difficult uh, question to answer, and I probably already know the answer from um, your Democrats on the panel, but my question for everybody is at what point is um, American lives more important than our our Asian allies, the Japanese and South Koreans, at what point is it incumbent upon us to take out those nuclear sites in North Korea okay. to prevent ICBMs from attacking us? I understand that there, there's probably going to be casualties on our allied okay. side, but at what point Josh, it's a good it's a good question, but you but but it's a good question, but you you've run on and and we run out of time to answer the question. But thanks very much. I want to thank John Kachelko for joining us for hour number one. Uh, the rest of the group will be back for hour number two as well as you. Hopefully, one 8029 I'm Bruce Dumont from Chicago. This March, Goodman Theatre Artistic Director Robert Falls presents a thrilling new production of Ibsen's timely classic, An Enemy of the People. When a water contamination crisis puts their town in peril, two brothers face off in a battle of political ambitions and moral integrity. The fate of the community hangs in the balance. The Village Voice raves, An Enemy of the People is exhilarating to experience. An Enemy of the People at Goodman Theatre. March 10th through April 15th. Tickets at goodmantheatre.org. Live from Chicago, it's Saturday Night Live, The Experience. Tuesday through Sundays, and open late on Wednesday nights at the Museum of Broadcast Communications. Order tickets at museum.tv. Are you planning for the day when you can retire to your dream home in Palm Springs, California? A day surrounded by spectacular scenery, golf courses, a rich cultural life, and great dining? If you are, you'll need a guide, someone who knows where to look, an experienced broker 
someone who knows the desert communities of Southern California and all they have to offer. That person is Brian Beard, who's been making dreams come true for over 13 years, selling over $100 million in real estate, including celebrity and architecturally significant homes to the rich and famous, and more importantly, to people just like you. Brian's company, Caldwell Banker, has agents worldwide, but Brian Beard is your man in Palm Springs. Call Brian now at 760-799-7096. That's 760-799-7096. Or visit him online at briansellsthedesert.com. Back, we continue on Beyond the Beltway. Thank you very much for joining us in this hour. We're going to be joined by Jamilia Hand, and uh, she is an expert in the area of opioids and uh, part of the opioid education uh, process in the United States. And Jack Charlier continues with us, and Phil Beverly also teaches a course in drug policy at uh, Chicago State University. Uh, Jack, last week you attended a major conference with the pharmaceutical companies uh, as well as the government and uh, with uh, with drug leaders and experts from all over the United States. Uh, uh, what, what came out of that conference? Mm -hmm. So uh, thanks for that. Uh, it was the National Rx Drug Abuse and Heroin Summit in Atlanta, which is really the main conference in the United States. There's lots that go on, but this is the main one in the United States uh, around the opioid epidemic. Uh, and so a few things that uh, listeners should know. Number one, there's more federal resources in the game now for uh, opioids or for, to combat opioids than ever before uh, through CARE, the Comprehensive Addiction Recovery Act. Uh, we're going to cross the $2 billion mark in the next fiscal year, which is a huge sum of mon money going into treatment, prevention, enforcement, collaborative work at the local level. So that's the first thing that came from it. Second is there's lots of folks all over the country, especially in hard-hit areas, from very local level to state level, who really have, over the last few years, learned to work collaboratively. Uh, together to kind of focus resources on the opioid epidemic in areas that are hit hardest. Jamilia, I want to ask you, uh, what is an opioid? And, and when did it become a crisis? Oh, gosh, that's a very loaded question. Um, thank you so much for asking. I think that um, it is, it's really hard to say. If we go back into the history, we won't be able to exactly know when it became a problem. But I'd like to settle on somewhere around the late 1980s when pharmaceutical companies uh, now had the, the privilege of direct-to-consumer advertising, telling consumers what they can go to their physicians and ask for. That paired with medical professionals that had very little opioid training, about four hours of of training and odds are that was probably seeing someone intoxicated or in withdrawal in the emergency room. So probably not the best educating education at that time, but those two things paired together with a general lack of education uh, to communities as well. It just made for a perfect storm. Phil Beverly, where did this problem first uh, rear its ugly head? When did we first realize there was a significant problem? I think it's been probably about 20 years with the, the prescription drug um, opioid portion. And then most recently, you know, we've had some an, another drug enter the, that sphere called fentanyl, which has just 
wreaked havoc. And fentanyl is, isn't just dangerous for the users, it's also dangerous for first responders. So police agencies, for example, are being told, if you suspect that there's fentanyl there, don't touch it, wait till hazmat gets there so they can process it, because it, it's powerful enough that, the, that absorbing it in your skin could kill you. But, the, but just to get back to the basic, this yeah. is a drug that is prescribed by doctors, correct? Yes. So to we, deal with pain or alleged pain, right? Right. Uh, it's been used for a long time. I mean, there's nothing new about right. opioids. So opioids is a general classification. Let's just break it out. Yeah. So you've got the prescription pills, right, which are things you go to a medical doctor, they prescribe to you. Well, uh, and what then are you those have by name? By, so right. for the... Uh, you know, like Vicodin, is okay. that what you mean? Yeah, okay. Oxycontin. Yeah, yeah, yeah Oxycontin. Yeah. Uh, Percocet. Percocet, Vicodin. Oxycontin, Vicodin. Uh, these are prescriptions. And then the other thing you have is heroin, right? So I want to, uh, you had asked uh, Jamelia a question. She did a great job. She's a very much a respected colleague of mine um, uh, of, of answering the question. Let us not remember just for at least take a minute and remember mm -hmm. the uh, heroin that has existed in the African-American community and acknowledging that history uh, that has been there and how that may have happened. We have to acknowledge that in light of today's opioid epidemic and the response now is a public health one versus a criminal justice response. I think that's fair for us to say there was different Absolutely. responses over time mm -hmm. to the same drug being used in communities. What is different now though is the numbers of people who have died uh, due to opiate overdose are off the charts. So Bruce, you and I have spoken about gun control. Uh, there's about 35,000, give or take, people a year who tragically die from gun violence. Opioids uh, are double that, are nearly double that right now. It surpasses HIV AIDS as a public health tragedy. It surpasses gun deaths as a criminal justice problem. It is huge, it is massive. Uh, we don't know where it's headed yet. Different projections say it's going up. Some communities are stabilizing, at least on the deaths, but not the overdoses yet. Is it yeah. more of a white problem? Is it more of an upper middle class white problem? Mm -hmm. Well, looking is at that, Is that yeah. why there's been so much focus on it? I mean, Donald Trump throughout the campaign, especially campaigning in New Hampshire, I mean, he's made this an issue for a long, long time yeah. and obviously uh, is, is part of the, yeah. the $2 billion that's, 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 that's flowing to try to deal with it. Yeah. But is it, is it because we're talking about an issue that hits uh, upper middle class white people more than black people? So uh, let me uh, answer with a few different points. First of all, uh, uh, and for your readers, if they haven't read Sam Quinones' book, Dreamland, that's the book to go pick up and read, however you read it online on your smartphone. And you'll see, you know, we're looking about the mid-2000s when the translation began to happen from pills to heroin. That's an important thing to put out. Um, the numbers are prime, the number of folks who, are, who have overdosed and died from heroin in this opioid epidemic, and again, I wanted to acknowledge what came before uh, the now as a public health response, uh, are primarily white. Uh, I saw numbers from the uh, Kaiser Foundation for 2015 uh, that show it's, you know, 35,000 deaths back then already. We're already way past that. The vast majority are white. Um, is that the reason we're responding this way? I, I don't think I can answer that, but I would say that it's it should be part of how we look at it and the narrative and make sure that we acknowledge the reality of possible racism. However, the number of people who are dying, the spectrum across which they are dying, also requires us to pay attention. People are dying that we have never seen before this kind of numbers. Jamelia, yes. what should we be doing to stop the deaths? Uh, well, there, there are many approaches, but ultimately a comprehensive and multidisciplinary 
approach. I mean, all of us have to do our parts. Um, if, if your listeners are, are parents, parents have to teach children at home about what an opioid is, you know, how it works, how it can impact them, how it can show up in their lives. Um, you have to provide this platform for us to speak about it. Clinicians have to ensure that patients practice safe and uh, proper storage and and uh, reduce misuse, abuse, and medication of opioids in their households. I mean, we all have a job to do. The pharmacist has a job to do. Law enforcement has a job to do. And as long as all of us do our part, we can definitely reduce the epidemic. But what about doctors? It would seem, well, mm -hmm. wouldn't the medical community be number yes. one up there and the pharmaceutical companies be number one at two? Absolutely. But it's, and, and personally, I think that it's is wrong to focus just on them. In some cases, their education is as limited as ours. And it may start with them, but it doesn't stop with them. And once it goes outside of their office as a community, we're all responsible to do our parts. What their approach has been so far is to reduce the amount of opioid prescribing, which in many cases is not the answer either. Uh, in, improper pain management will almost always lead to increased uh, illicit abuse and, and heroin, and 80% of people on heroin started with uh, pain medication. 1-800-723-8289, mm. that's the phone number. I'm Bruce Dumont. We're talking about opioids tonight. Thanks for joining us tonight. This March, Goodman Theater Artistic Director Robert Falls presents a thrilling new production of Ibsen's timely classic, An Enemy of the People. When a water contamination crisis puts their town in peril, two brothers face off in a battle of political ambitions and moral integrity. The fate of the community hangs in the balance. The Village Voice raves, An Enemy of the People is exhilarating to experience. An Enemy of the People at Goodman Theater. March 10th through April 15th. Tickets at goodmantheater.org. Bruce Dumont back in Chicago. Phil Beverly, uh, let's talk more about uh, the doctors and the medical profession. What are they doing to get up to speed, to understand their role in it, and, and, and to deal with patients who need their prescription, but they don't want to overprescribe it? I think it's, uh, they're not doing enough, and I think it starts in the, in the <clears throat> training environments in medical schools that don't have rotations in they have a, generally a, a psychiatric rotation, but not an addictions-focused rotation. And so I interviewed um, some applicants to a medical school in Chicago this year and <clears throat> talked to them about an ethical dilemma around addiction of a colleague. And th they had never really even considered addiction. I said, do you know how addiction works? And they're like, no, we, we never talk about that. So they don't talk about it in undergraduate science classes. They're not really going to talk much about it in medical school. I don't know where they get the training to have the conversations that they need to have with people because that population is a special population. What should we know about addiction, Jamila? Well, we should know that it's chronic and relapsing. Um, it does not get better unless we intervene period. We cannot let it go untreated. What draws people to be addicted? Uh, well, there are a number of things. There are biological factors, psychological factors, social and environmental factors. There are a lot of things that play into how someone can become addicted. 
Um, let's let's talk about some of those. Phil, do you want to jump in, it, or Jack, jump in on some of these specifics here? I'd like to get down into more some specifics. Yeah. In, in terms here. of um, folks that I know <clears throat> who are, say, in recovery um, and conversations that we've had, the, one of the key elements is some element of trauma. And they begin to either self-medicate or then, which could be maybe they work too hard or too much uh, food or whatever, some of them need something else to medicate. And it could be just to take the edge off and suddenly their their brain has now adapted to, oh, I need this. Mm-hmm. And so now they've got the physical addiction along with the psychological behavioral stuff. And that really is, if there is a, if there's a traumatic situation in anyone's life, one of the first things that will happen is they will be given, I'll use the word sedative, they'll be giving, they'll be given something to, so they can sleep well, or if there is pain involved, they get that pain. I mean, it, it, it starts in, a, in an innocuous way, does it not, Jack? Well, so it's an individual, here's one thing, it's individualized, right? Everybody's mm-hmm. use where they start is very much contextual to who mm-hmm. they are. Um, addiction is a chronic relapsing disease of the brain. Jamilio was right, I wanted to throw in, it's a disease of the brain. So when someone's addicted now, it transfers over into that arena, neuroscience, instead of just, gee, I think I'll use one time or not. And everybody reacts very differently to it. So to your question, Bruce, about what is it that the medical community can do, uh, and by the way, the AMA classified uh, addiction is a disease of the brain over 20 years ago. It's not for scientific debate anymore. It is a disease of the brain. Like hypertension, like diabetes, it falls into the same categories, and so there are treatments for it. Any listener out there who's in the medical field, no matter whether a nurse, doctor, or whatever, hospital administrator, train your staff. Get the three known medications since we're talking opioids. There's, you know, addiction is addiction is addiction from the clinical side. But since we're talking opioids, get the three known medications. I won't use their brand names, but methadone, um, I was about to say methadone, buprenorphine, yep. Uh, and I was almost going to fall back into uh, the brand name again, uh, naltrexone, not the brand name. Get those, get naloxone on board, train your staff, have those medications available along with a cognitive behavioral a therapy program that is treatment and get people into recovery through recovery coaches and peers. In that last 30 seconds, I just gave you what is essentially the standard of care for treatment of opiate use disorder. Medication, last, treatment, cognitive behavior, recovery. Last week, the, the Surgeon General of the United States yep. suggested that basically if you have people in your family that are yep. having a problem or law enforcement, that there should be a drug that, that, that they carry with them all the time. Absolutely. Is that a good idea? Do you oh, recommend that? Absolutely. What's the name of that drug? It's, it's naloxone, and okay. there are a couple of brands available. And what does that do? Physi- Physiological, what, what, what does it, it do? It's an overdose antidote. It reverses an overdose. So Saves if, lives. Absolutely. And as Jack mentioned, everyone, and the Surgeon General mentioned, everyone mm-hmm. should carry it. Three out of the four overdoses happen in the presence of a family or a loved one. So it's not just law enforcement that should have it, because guess what? Yeah. As long as someone can't breathe, you know, life is, is disintegrating But does all, quickly. let me ask the question, does virtually all law enforcement carry this with them? No, not yet. It's, not it's yet. being dispersed throughout the United States. The is it part is no. of this $2 billion that's out there that's trying to deal with the, the, the deaths caused yeah. by it? So some of the care money will indeed go to increase the number of law enforcement. And let me back up and say first responders yes. who are carrying it, because we have to acknowledge fire and EMS and actually ER treatment, 
faith community, everybody should have access yes. to it, easily free without a prescription because it is an absolutely life-saving medication. It's not a drug. It's a medication. It causes no harm if you use it, and, and it's not it. It's no harm. It just unbinds the molecule in the brain, and but if you that's are, it. But if you are in a family where there's someone who yep. is susceptible to that, the, the Surgeon General is saying you should have absolutely. it there in the house. Absolutely. Now that's... Is that covered by insurance? Is that part of what the government's giving to you? Or are you going down to Walgreens to get that? Yes. You, well, you can do both. <clears throat> In some cases, you can take a prescription to the pharmacy, have it filled. How much but, does it cost? Um, In many cases, it's between 75 and 150 out of pocket. However, there are websites. $150? Yes. But let's be real. Uh, how much is the cost of a funeral? And if we can save someone's well, life at home... Average funeral cost is between four and ten thousand dollars. Yeah, but there's a lot of people that probably need it who can't afford one hundred and fifty dollars. I just have a question for the two of you. So, can you treat um, naloxone like, say, an EpiPen? Is it easy enough yes, to use? Absolutely. Because yeah. what came to me was, okay, so now say everybody's got them. Mm -hmm. Is it intramuscular or is it intravenous? How do you administer it? Yeah, it it should be sort of. My nine-year-old should be able to yeah. administer it yeah. if her 25-year-old sister is overdosing, right? Yes, and I, I read an article about, um, I believe it was in Ohio Grammar School that uh, got a free donation of naloxone and trained some very young people to be able to administer it. Yeah, okay. There's an intramuscular, there, you know, IV is mostly used in healthcare settings, hospitals, mm -hmm. ERs. But there's also uh, auto injector and intranasal. How yeah. does this very simple uh, to do? Yeah, okay. yeah. It's like after. In in, in in trying to get to this particular point, um, don't we or have we not already run into resistance from people who may view that having this in their house, even if there's a loved one in their house that might use it that it is somehow viewed as enabling them that we're yeah. that it's it's like giving uh, giving free needles out to to those that mm -hmm. use yeah. heroin so, yeah. that this is a yeah. government program that's not really a great program it may it may save lives yes but it it could encourage or enable people yeah. whereas do you acknowledge that there's people out there that are thinking that tonight listening to this show jack well, um, I'm going to say from where I sit, uh, there's no, there's absolutely no proof whatsoever that anybody uses uh, so that naloxone can be administered to them to revive them. So, no, I completely disagree with that from a public health strategy, right, which is how you need to look at this like HIV AIDS, like anything else. Naloxone saves lives, and if I save your life, I can get you into treatment and into recovery. That's the goal. Right. There is nothing about this that anybody who's using, who's actually addicted, is pleasant, is nice, is kind, is fun, it's wonderful. Addiction is a horrible, chronic, relapsing disease of the brain that no one enters into willingly. And if any of your listeners have seen anybody who's addicted, right, so let's separate that from just, you know, drug use, addicted. The brain's engaged. There's nothing pleasant about it. There's nothing good about it. No one engages for the point of, hey, I'll get revived. That is a myth. It is false. There's no research that shows that. To, mm -hmm. those, to, those, to those who are listening tonight, and to get, get, get reaction from everybody, to those that are listening tonight that may be addicted or they have a loved one that is addicted, um, how do you get their attention to seek help 
if they don't want to seek help. Jamila? Yes, well, uh, my father was addicted. He was addicted to opiates. It started with, uh, he was a, a victim of gun violence. And the bullet was lodged in a very precarious place. And it was, he was in pain constantly, all the time. He didn't get it removed because it would have somehow compromised his, his uh, I believe it was his pancreas. So he did not get it removed. The result of that was constant pain all the time. His physician prescribed pain medication, right? Over time, he became a problem for, his, for the physician's practice. Uh, he had to do whatever he had to do to feel better. And that's really when the cycle began. But as young as six, I can remember witnessing him overdose for the first time. And I'll tell you, is if any, for any child, for any adult who has witnessed an overdose, it is the most horrible position, feeling to be in. You feel completely disempowered. You feel completely helpless. You're watching a loved one die slowly and you don't know what to do and the last thing you want to do is to go through life with that image because it is tattooed on your brain forever so i spent my life trying to help him trying to fix him my career mirrors my attempt to get him recovery i became a counselor i taught about addictions i worked for addictions medications i did everything that i could but ultimately it was up to him it really was up to him. The only thing I could do was to bring him the resources. Did he do it? No, he passed away in 2010. Okay. And how many years did you try to get him to? Um, it, was, it was close to most 30. Most of your life. But I'll well, tell yeah. you this. He did have moments of recovery. And because of those moments, I can reflect and have moments of positivity, moments where he had clarity, moments where we had conversations that he would have never had if he was intoxicated at that time. So I it wanna, was worth it. I want to talk more about those specifics when we come back. You're, you're sure. hitting on a very obviously personal nerve, but I think you're probably hitting uh, to a lot of nerves that are out there listening to the radio broadcast this evening. 1-800-723-8029. I'm Bruce Dumont. We're talking about opioids and addiction tonight on Beyond the Beltway. Are you planning for the day when you can retire to your dream home in Palm Springs, California? A day surrounded by spectacular scenery, golf courses, a rich cultural life, and great dining? If you are, you'll need a guide, someone who knows where to look, an experienced broker, someone who knows the desert communities of Southern California and all they have to offer. That person is Brian Beard, who's been making dreams come true for over 13 years, selling over $100 million in real estate, including celebrity and architecturally significant homes to the rich and famous, and more importantly, to people just like you. Brian's company, Caldwell Banker, has agents worldwide, but Brian Beard is your man in Palm Springs. Call Brian now at 760-799-7096. That's 760-799-7096. Or visit him online at briansellsthedesert.com. Bruce Dumont back in Chicago. We're talking about opioid and addiction tonight. Uh, Phil Beverly is here. Jack Charlier is here. And uh, Jamila Hand also joined us. And uh, Jamila, before the break, you were talking about your personal story uh, with your father who was addicted. Yes. Uh, you tried intervention. The family was involved for quite some time. How many years were you actually trying to get him out of the predicament that he was in? 
Well, I, I said 30, um, and that's only because... 30 years. Well, I'll tell you why. Obviously, I'm not more than 32. But what ended up happening was, um, even as a young child, you have the desire to take care of your parents, right? Mm -hmm. And when you have someone who's addicted in your household, you become the parent. You end up taking care of them. You, you end up doing things for them. And you essentially trade places with the parent. And a result of that is growing up, you know, way too fast and having to take on responsibilities that children should not take on. So uh, I would have to say a, a good 30 years. You also said that there were times when it looked like he was getting better and there would be then a relapse. It was so up and down a teeter-totter. Uh, how often did that happen? And was there, any, was there any period of time that you thought, okay, dad's been able to lick this thing. He's, he's beyond it. Did, was there ever any period of time that made you think that positively? Oh, absolutely. We we had, you know, several episodes of that and he seemed to uh remind us of, of who we were of who he was and who we knew him to be. He was a very nurturing man. He cared a lot for his girls. He took care of us. He combed hair. He took us places. So we had periods where that was the case. Um, the very last case, he I had the privilege of introducing him to medication assisted treatment, uh, which has a very uh, significant outcomes, something not used nationwide as often as we should use it. But he had maybe about five or six months of sobriety during that time. He told me a lot of things, including that he was not ready to stop doing what he was doing. And, you know, he eventually uh, relapsed and passed away. That's an important point uh, that Jamelia brings up in her story for people to know is when he's saying it's a chronic relapsing disease, they're going to go, in, everybody in, uh, responds individually, but they need to be prepared for the up and down Absolutely. of no use, uh, abstinence is mm -hmm. in no use, uh, still in recovery, you're always in recovery, and then use again. And it mm -hmm. can be extremely frustrating and tiring and right. exhausting but, on the individual and the families, but that is part of disease management that this is. But do you but do you go from one drug to another? In other words, one drug, the opioid, is the one that's ruining your life. Mm -hmm. Do you go, and we've talked about a drug that can, that can reverse a death, uh, which is now being suggested by the Surgeon General. D do you go to another drug that addresses your issue of pain, but it, it, it makes you function in a better way? Are you talking about, uh, so medication-assisted treatment, the use of medications, right. you mean? Right. Right. So the, the three medications, the general categories that are mentioned, which are not the brand names, but right. uh, so uh, you have uh, methadone, right? You have buprenorphine, you have okay. naltrexone. Those three are medications. They're not drugs. Uh, they're medications, and they are used to stabilize the cravings so that people can get into treatment and the treatment can work and get into recovery. In the last segment, you talked about the, uh, the drug epidemic in the United States, and that we're the number one drug user in the, in the world we were talking yep. as it relates to marijuana and, and other drugs that are coming in from Mexico and South America. What percentage of this country is affect or involved in drugs in some way. Either they're marijuana users, they're, they're tied in with the opioid, 
prescription drugs, how widespread, what, what percentage of Americans are hooked on something, Jack? Mm -hmm. So we're at about 22 million Americans is generally the number that's used. There's 350 million Americans, but you have to understand a lot of those, uh, I mean, those that's all ages. Yeah. But it's a, considered to be about 22 million. Jamilia, do you? Yes. Uh, yeah, um, it's about 22 about two million. About and a half million specifically um, on opioids, and less than 10% of those get help. Yeah. What was unique about New Hampshire? New Hampshire got a lot of focus, continues to get a lot of focus, uh, obviously with something that was a presidential primary up there, but mm -hmm. is, is New Hampshire unique as a state or is it just uh, because of uh, where Donald Trump learned about the problem? Mm -hmm. Well, they, they're one of the five states that has the highest rates of overdose deaths, so I'm not sure that's a thing that you want to stand out on, but in terms of uniqueness, New Hampshire is uh, you know, right up there, unfortunately, with Ohio, with West Virginia, Pennsylvania, and Kentucky. Those are the five states that have the highest overdose death rates. Do we know um, why? Any, any speculation as to why? Um, I can answer only kind of from my criminal justice side. Yeah. Uh, I don't know fully the public health side, uh, but uh, some of those states are ones where you had small rural towns and you began to see doctors uh, as they started looking at their uh, prescribing. Now, this is opioids before the transition to heroin, right? right? We need to talk about that, too, how that happened. But you had small towns, say 400 people, and there are 10,000 pill prescriptions in that town of 400. So how does right. that happen, and what is the impact of that? That when people talk about the pill mills, that is the emergence in the United States of the overprescribing, not just the innocent doctor who says, um, hey, you know, I want to be able to help you out. It is the idea that population versus number of pills prescribed, unbelievable, everybody has a prescription for 100 pills in a small town. Doesn't make sense. Not We're going all. to Springfield, Illinois, listening to us on WMAY. This evening is John. He's identified himself as a former addict. Go ahead. You're on the air. Hello. Great program. Thank you. Can you speak up a little bit louder? Good. Yes, sir. Great program. Thank you. I'm glad you're getting the message out there. There's not too many people like me that have recovered from this thing. You know, I'm 55 years old, and in 1999, I had really strong bursitis in my left shoulder. And I was starting to get bronchitis and different things, so I had a shoulder surgery. At that time, they put me on uh, hydrocodone. And I mm. noticed that it not only took away the, the pain in my shoulder, my body, but it took away some of the pain in your, in your head. You know, when you're, when you're hurting like that, you know, you're feeling down. So I took the prescription for a couple years. After getting the surgery, I had a staph infection, and that broke open a bron chronic bronchitis, sinusitis ear infections and all kinds of different things. So I'm taking more and more of this pain medication and then the doctor cuts me off. So I found a pharmacy in Florida that was willing to sell, send it to me. I think I got 160 pills for 90 bucks with my Visa card. And so I used that prescription up until about 2004, 2005 when the Bush administration yeah. cracked down real hard and they shut that pharmacy down and they got my name and number and called me and they were trying to get me on some other pain medication. But anyway, uh, I started buying it on the street. I started buying oxycodone, oxycodone from uh, people that I knew for ten bucks a pill. You know, and I how easy, how easy it, John? How easy was it for you to get it on the black market? Oh, it's real easy if you know the right, you know, if you know the right crowd. But um, what's you know, the right crowd? Just describe for. describe what the right crowd well, looks it like. Was, it was a guy that was working for me actually. Okay. And he was a yuppie. He had a big estate that was going to be given to him, and he had all the money in the world, but. He got on that stuff, and it just, he was, 
there was times I'd come over to his uh, computer where he's working, workstation, and he would be almost comatose, laying there, you know, drooling at the mouth. And, and I'm like, I don't know what's going on here, because I wasn't taking that much, you know what I mean? But some people just go overboard with it. But anyway, to get to the point I wanted to make, it, the thing that helped me recover is I started doctor shopping trying to get rid I was getting ready to have another shoulder surgery in my right shoulder, right? Because I had bursitis that had infected it. I mean, the tightest stuff gets in you. And I was shopping doctors trying to figure out why I had this underlying infection. Well, then I get to one that wants to give me Leviquin, which is a deathbed antibiotic that will rupture your shins. It's happened to a congressman and, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of people, if not hundreds of thousands. But it's a, it's a horrible thing. So I, I Googled that and I said, I'm not paying this for $700 worth of prescriptions. For They were just throwing everything at us, you know. And so I went and got another opinion. First thing this doctor did was give me a, uh, a blood test. And she came back and she said, do you realize you're severely B deficient? I've never heard that term before. She said, you're like four uh, NGML and you're supposed to be at like 60. And I said, well, what's that do? She said, well, it compromises your immune system. And that's probably why you have all these itis bacteria. So she put me on a prescription for D2. I went to the pharmacy. It was like 40,000 units a week, I think. It was only one milligram. And, you know, they, the, the international units is kind of... Uh, you know, misleading because it's only one milligram of D3, 40,000 units. You get that much. I'm, I'm talking about D2, but I bought the D3 off the shelf, which was the right move for me at the time. It was an ignorant move. It was due to cost. But it's on the shelf there. It's cheap. So I started taking 40,000 units of D3 a day, one milligram, for 90, 90 days. And that was in 2008. I canceled the shoulder surgery. I've never had bronchitis, sinusitis, ear infections, uh, diverticulitis. And the bursitis went away, and I felt like a million bucks, and I ditched the pain medication in 2010 by myself. And you haven't had anything since 2010? I haven't even had a cold or flu. And, I mean, I caught them every time they came around. And this is something the doctors and big pharma is hiding from everybody, and I'm glad to be on the air talking to all these people. Go out and get you some D3. It's safe. When you hear about the warnings about D, vitamin D, it's D2. It was a process that was purchased by big pharma in 1939. And it's toxic and ineffective compared to D3. D3 is natural. If you go out in an hour of sunshine, you get 40,000 units. Okay? So I've been taking that ever since then. And the okay. only side effects I've had is excellent health. My wife takes it too. She quit taking it a couple months ago. Okay. Flu. Let's, get rea Let's get reaction from, from either of our okay, guests. Do you have a comment, uh, Jamila? Thank you so Any much. Any comment? Thank you, John. Um, yes, I think that nature in general is a, a very good prescription for for most things, um, and mm -hmm. so I don't deny that. However, the um, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, otherwise known as SAMHSA, um, they've developed some national guidance for choosing, uh, you know, quality treatments and approaches, and that is just a small part of what most people have to do to recover. Okay. We're going to take another call in a moment, 1-800-723-8209. From coast to coast and border to border tonight from Chicago, I'm Bruce Dumont. Thanks for joining us. Chicago, it's Saturday Night Live, The Experience. Tuesday through Sundays, and open late on Wednesday nights 
at the Museum of Broadcast Communications. Order tickets at museum.tv. Bruce about back in Chicago. We continue. Before we run out of time, I want to ask the question, uh, if there are people out there this evening who either have this problem or have a loved one uh, or a friend who has this problem, where do they go for help? There I mean, if they, if they went to their, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but if they go to their doctor, I'm hearing you say that the doctors may not really have a good remedy for what they should do next. Yes. Uh, well, if we look at what the physician has time to deal with, you may get 10, 15 minutes of their time. And during that time, they basically screen, diagnose, and, and prescribe. They don't do a lot of treatment. So if they don't have resources in place to treat this issue, it's going to get overlooked. The Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, otherwise known as SAMHSA, has a national locator where people can go and look up any type of service they believe that they need and find a, a clinician to help, inpatient or outpatient. Most of the nation's resources are there. And what is, give the name of, of, of that organization, it's, how do they find it? SAMHSA, S-A-M-H-S-A dot org. And it's a governmentally ran uh, website. SAMHSA.org. Yes. Dot .gov, I think it is. Dot .gov. SAMHSA.gov. Yeah, yes, yeah. Yes. SAMHSA.gov. Thank you, And you can go there, and it's, it's a treatment locator. For folks who have insurance, however they got it, or uh, Medicaid, uh, right, insurance what or Medicare, they, they can contact what, what, that. What if they don't? Uh -huh. What if they don't have insurance? Yep. Mm -hmm. and, and they have yeah. a loved one or themselves, yeah. they want mm -hmm. to do something, where do they go? Uh, county Public Health Department, uh, County Public Health Departments provide services for mm -hmm. treatment. I know, Jamila, you may want to chime in on that for those who don't have insurance. Right. And, and, and SAMHSA has those resources as, as well. The Department of Alcoholism and Substance Abuse, which is a division of SAMHSA, has, you know, government funding. And right now, I think we're up to, to $7 billion. That will be uh, divvied up between the states to allocate uh, for treatment. Yeah. Main thing is uh, people need to know that treatment works, recovery is possible, and they have to just be willing to stand by their loved ones, friends, neighbors through the long, long process that this might end up being. And the good news, which we heard at the beginning of this hour, is the government understands the problem. Congress has recently addressed the problem and poured more money into it mm -hmm. than at any time in the history Correct. of dealing with any health-related issue? And any addiction-related issue, addiction. other yes. than the Affordable Care Act, which was the largest expansion of, right. expansion of medical services in the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, the funding for CARA, which is Opioids Plus, mm -hmm. uh, is the largest in the history of the United States. Now, money needs to translate into policy and action at the local level, but still, it is a huge deal uh, that CARA is there and in place. And, and someone at this organization is there to answer your question and help you now. Yes, so SAMHSA is a website locator, but if you call your local public health department in whatever county or parish, if you're in Louisiana, mm -hmm. that you live in, they will be able to guide you to the local treatment providers. Okay, Lou, listening to us in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Go ahead, Lou. Yeah, um, my, my father-in-law, he's got, a, he's got a, a pain doctor for his back, and uh, he's had operations and stuff. Well, his, uh, 
doctor over six months ago started pushing that antidote. Either you can get it, you can get an AmpiPen that's like a box that actually talks to you pretty much. It's weird. Or a nasal. He ended up getting a nasal because the, the leg thing costs way too much. And uh, like I said, he's he's up in his ages. And, uh, you know, one of these days, unfortunately, I hope to God that it doesn't happen, that he might lose his wit and, you know, mix up the medicines or whatever they're taking over there. And uh, and I might have to use that thing. So thank God they did have to come, they did come out with that. Uh-huh. Okay, well, listen, thank you for your testimony. We appreciate it. Let's go to Michael listening to us in Lynchburg, Virginia. He's listening to us on Sirius XM Satellite Radio. Go ahead, Michael. Hello. Hi. Um, I'm a a practicing dentist in uh, Lynchburg, Virginia, who deals with people who are in pretty severe pain just about all day. Yes. And um, and I just want to know, I'm listening to the steel. They're telling me that I shouldn't, I got to help it's interesting listening to you know, all these talk about opioids. Not one person has ever cited this, the Center for Disease Control and the National Bureau of uh, Deaths. It's what the graph actually looks like with opioid death. Is that because you, you asked the question, Bruce, to start with, when did this become a crisis? And the mm-hmm. answer that was given, well, it's sort of always been a crisis. No, it didn't become a crisis till about 2015, which is where, the, the, if you look at the graph, it's right there online, it's, it's insignificant, it floats along way below heroin, and all of a sudden, right at about this year, the graph goes straight up. Now, I promise you that doctors didn't all of a sudden start changing their prescribing habits right at that point. So. It's only fentanyl that's making this thing a crisis. So to label all these people like me who just work every day and, you know, give some hydrocodone or anything like that, it's like there's some kind of part of this problem, I take offense to that. That's just my two cents. All right, go ahead, uh, Jack. Yeah, so first of all, um, when we look at the development of this in the United States to where it is now, we go back to about the mid-2000s. It doesn't matter whether you say 2003, 2008. The point is this crisis has its origins, and the CDC data on opioids uh, as the main driver of overdose deaths um, is, in fact, correct. So it, it is opioids. They are the ones that are pushing up the numbers, and more recently, he's right, fentanyl on the overdose deaths, but that's more recently. And he's also right, as a dentist, anyone that is involved in the medical profession, you you want to relieve your client of pain. So if if you've had your teeth pulled out, you know, and I've I've had teeth pulled, you you want something to get rid of the pain, and and you can only survive because of it. So, doctor, listen, thank you very much for your call. We're running out of time. Thank you very much. We didn't mean to uh, uh, disparage all the dentists and the doctors uh, who are trying to provide pain, but again, we're looking at this in a context of political and, and a variety of other ways. And we thank our guests this evening. Uh, Jack Charlier has been here, and Jamila Hand has been here, and Philip Beverly has been here. We thank you all for joining us this evening. Our thanks to Sam Greenberg and Dan Dorfman for their assistance in the production of this program. I'm Bruce Dumont. Good night from sh- Chicago. This March, Goodman Theater Artistic Director Robert Falls presents a thrilling new production of Ibsen's timely classic, An Enemy of the People. 
When a water contamination crisis puts their town in peril, two brothers face off in a battle of political ambitions and moral integrity. The fate of the community hangs in the balance. The Village Voice raves, an enemy of the people is exhilarating to experience. An enemy of the people at Goodman Theater, March 10th through April 15th. Tickets at goodmantheater.org. Live from Chicago, it's Saturday Night Live, The Experience. Tuesday through Sundays, and open late on Wednesday nights at the Museum of Broadcast Communications. Order tickets at museum.tv. Are you planning for the day when you can retire to your dream home in Palm Springs, California? A day surrounded by spectacular scenery, golf courses, a rich cultural life, and great dining? If you are, you'll need a guide, someone who knows where to look, an experienced broker, someone who knows the desert communities of Southern California and all they have to offer. That person is Brian Beard, who's been making dreams come true for over 13 years, selling over $100 million in real estate, including celebrity and architecturally significant homes to the rich and famous, and more importantly, to people just like you. Brian's company, Caldwell Banker, has agents worldwide, but Brian Beard is your man in Palm Springs. Call Brian now at 760-799-7096. That's 760-799-7096. Or visit him online at briansellsthedesert.com. 